Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, shocking developments in Ontario's capital city as John Tory announces he'll step down as mayor. The federal and provincial governments are still trying to figure out a health care funding arrangement. We'll talk to an Ontario doctor who's also a member of the legislature about what he'd like to see. And Queen's Park is shutting down for renovations. Here's how the Pink Palace will modernize, but at what cost? It's February 14th, 2023. Happy Valentine's Day. Let's get to it. John Michael, you and I normally do a little chit-chat off the top, but given the events we have to discuss this week, I'm going to suggest we dispense with that and get right to it because... The developments at Toronto City Hall have been so shocking. Last Friday, to recap, an e-blast went out saying the mayor would hold a news conference outside his office at 8.30 p.m. If there's one truism in politics, it's that any politician making an announcement at 8.30 on a Friday night, well, it can't be good. And in fact, it wasn't. John Tory announcing he was resigning as the capital city's 65th mayor because the Toronto Star was publishing an article suggesting the mayor had been engaged in a romantic relationship with an employee in his office. Tory said the two mutually broke off what he described as a consensual relationship earlier this year. The employee is apparently 31 years old. Tory is 68. He added this was a serious lapse in judgment and said he intended to resign as mayor once a transition could be smoothly organized. JMM, there are myriad issues at play here, so... Well, let's just start. Let's start to go through them. So I think we can separate what are uh, the issues around Mr. Tory's own uh, personal business and his personal behavior and what is uh, what are matters of public interest. Uh, much of the chatter we've seen on uh, social media suggests that, you know, if the mayor had an affair, uh, the, the affair itself is uh, his business and his family's. Uh, we in the media do... Mostly, I would say, adhere to a tradition that uh, personal, uh, prurient details of politicians' lives uh, are not necessarily newsworthy if they don't obviously have uh, an effect on the uh, clear public interests. The trouble comes when inappropriate behavior does cross over into the public interest, and that is what we are talking about here. For example, the relationship itself, there is an obvious power imbalance here. Uh, The mayor insists the relationship was consensual, but I think in uh, 2023, you have to question whether a relationship can ever be uh, truly consensual among equals if one party is the older male boss and the other party is a much younger female employee. Uh, who literally is dependent on that boss for her employment. Uh, um, Signing on 110% to what you just said, but before you go on, I think we do need to be careful here about how many assumptions we make. Uh, We have no idea what the nature of their relationship was. I note there was a new Democrat MP who tweeted on Friday night some severe criticism of Mayor Tory for, in his words, creeping on a younger employee. You know, with all due respect, that MP has no idea how this relationship began. We don't know that the mayor was, quote, creeping on anyone. I mean, for all we know, it was the employee who initiated things. Furthermore, yes, there is a power imbalance to be sure. But there's a power imbalance and then there's a power imbalance. And I've had numerous people email me to say, 
You know, this employee was not 18 years old. She was 31. She's an adult. She's more than capable of making her own decisions about whether to pursue a relationship with the mayor, and they feel any reaction which suggests, you know, this poor defenseless girl was in over her head, really infantilizes her and treats her like a helpless victim. We put that on the record. I mean, that may be the case here, may not be the case, but we put it on the record for consideration anyway. None of this is meant to excuse the mayor's conduct, which he readily admits was not up to his own personal standards, but it does put, I would suggest, some nuance at play here. It's a complicated story, and, you know, the media are almost universally uh, declining to name uh, the other woman in this story, uh, and and that, I think, has the effect of we aren't getting her story. Uh, Maybe she will choose to to tell it later, but uh, we want to both respect her privacy, but also, as you're alluding to, you don't want to take her agency away in in all of this. That's a key thing, because women almost universally get trashed under circumstances like this, right? Especially on social media. She's going to be portrayed as, uh, you know, the the woman with the scarlet letter on her forehead, and, and none of that will be fair. Now, there is a another potential area where the public interest could be at play. Uh, Mayor Tory and this employee apparently took several foreign trips together. Uh, they were portrayed by the mayor's office as, as business trips promoting Toronto. And, of course, it's possible that they were, in fact, doing that. But they also could have effectively been uh, personal trips on the taxpayer dime. Uh, if they were and if taxpayers you know, we're paying expenses for those trips, even if it was just, you know, part of what happened, that I think very clearly becomes a matter of public interest. And, uh, you know, it seems to be part of what uh, Mr. Tory wanted to avoid by announcing his resignation was was having people pour over these kinds of details. Right. Now that Tory has announced his intention to leave, at least as we sit here, uh, you know, on the afternoon of Monday, February 13th, it is still, according to record, his intention to leave. It does set in motion a series of moves that the city is obliged to follow. And I, I just happen to have sitting opposite me here in the voice booth uh, a guy who's pretty up on the City of Toronto Act and can take us through all the permutations of what comes next. So what does come next? Uh, so as part of becoming mayor or being re-elected as mayor, uh, John Tory has to name a deputy. Uh, after the last election, he named uh, Scarborough Councillor Jennifer McKelvey as his deputy mayor. Uh, she will take over as a, a acting mayor uh, on an interim basis. The law requires that there be an election to replace the mayor. That wasn't always the case. That was actually not the case until recently uh, when the provincial government brought in changes to the mayor's powers, giving him the so-called strong mayor powers. One of the changes they made was to uh, say that council could no longer vote to simply appoint a replacement mayor. Uh, They would uh, have to hold an election unless it's very close to uh, the regular election four years from now. Obviously, we're not in that circumstance. There will have to be an election. Uh, There is some flexibility for the city clerk who will actually have to make the decision about uh, what the, the the timing of the process will be once uh, the mayor does, in fact, formally resign, which, again, as uh, as we record this, he has not done that yet. Um, 
the the election looks like it will probably be in May. In theory, it could actually be as late as July, but I think that's pretty unlikely. Um, but that's sort of where we are standing right now. If John Tory does, in fact, confirm his decision to uh, resign, then you're looking at a, an election in the largest city in Canada for the next several months. And just clear up one more thing for me. To the best of my knowledge, McKelvey, who takes over on an interim basis does not assume the strong mayor powers that John Tory would have had had he stayed in the job. Is that right? The provincial law is not drafted super clearly on this matter. <laughs> okay. So one of the things that is being discussed is that uh, John Tory would stay on uh, for another few days this week to finalize the city's budget to make sure that it is uh, passed by council uh, with no uh, major revisions or amendments. And uh, only after that is done would he then resign. Gotcha. Well, we know there are going to be a plethora of candidates kicking the tires on whether to run for mayor. Given that there is no incumbent, there's no obvious front runner, which means a lot of people think they've got a shot at this thing. All right. Time to name names. And let's remember, all these people thought that they had another three years to figure this out. Now they are suddenly in a position where they may have three days to figure all this out because the campaign will be upon us quickly. We mentioned the name of the deputy mayor, the current deputy mayor, Jennifer McKelvey, who presumably will take over once John Tory's papers are filed and he's no longer the mayor. She has already told friends, I'm told, that she uh, is not interested in seeking the job on a permanent basis. So at the moment, she's out. If you look at the current members of city council, Josh Matlow, Brad Bradford, Gary Crawford, I'd add the name Stephen Holliday from Etobicoke, uh, they've all expressed interest in the job. If you look at former councillors, there's a lot of speculation around Anna Bailao, uh, who almost certainly will run, Mike Layton, Joe Cressy, two people who left because they said it was just uh, intolerable on their private lives, on their family lives, to be on city council at this time. They almost certainly won't run, but then again, you never know. Well, Joe oh, Cressy has ruled it out. He's, uh, he's yes, unequivocally ruled it out, uh, but Leighton has not yet. How about a wild card? Michael Pinball Clemens, uh, you know, all-star for the Toronto Argonauts for many years. Um, Mike Clemens has, I mean, he's got one problem in as much as he lives in Oakville. I don't think he's ever lived in the 416, but, you know, he's, he's a huge name. Lots of people love him. He'd be a real wild card. And this is only on the municipal scene. What about at the provincial level? A few different MPPs names have been mentioned. Uh, MPP Stan Cho was uh, named as a potential uh, conservative candidate uh, for mayor. He uh, has ruled himself out. Uh, people have mentioned Michael Ford's name. He is, of course, the premier's nephew and was a city councillor uh, before last year's election. Uh, New Democrat MPP Butila Karpoche is uh, also being considered. I actually spoke with her on Sunday. She says she's received numerous calls of people urging her uh, to run, but uh, she hasn't made any decision yet. Uh, she does say, however, that she believes that the city does need uh, a new direction after eight years of John Tory and uh, four years of Rob Ford before him. Federal Liberal MP and former MPP Michael Cotto is another name in the mix. You know, uh, he was a, a potential Liberal leadership contestant. He he challenged Stephen Del Duca, uh, lost, stayed on as an MPP for a little bit, has moved to federal politics. But you know, he I think when he made the move, you and I talked about how like maybe he wouldn't love being a federal backbencher mm -hmm. for that long, and he might uh, want to to find something else to do. Well, something else has opened up. <laughs> <laughs> might also throw Mitzi Hunter's name in there as well from Scarborough, the MPP and the Liberal caucus. Uh, her name has been associated with the uh, potentially running for the mayor's job as well. Now, there is one more angle we need to explore here. 
The mayor has not yet technically resigned. He has announced his intention to do so, but he has not yet filed his papers. Is it crazy of me to ask the question, is the mayor delaying his resignation to see whether a groundswell of support might rise up and urge him to rescind his resignation? I don't think it's crazy to ask the question. In fact, I know for a fact, uh, having touched base with various sources this afternoon, that there are people both on council and around council who are urging the mayor to take a second look at this, that he moved too hastily and he should rethink resigning. What are you hearing? Well, you know, we can just go from what we're seeing publicly here. Uh, Rosie DeMano, a, a Toronto Star columnist, obviously the Star has really uh, been leading the coverage of this issue. They broke the story in the first place. Uh, Rosie DeMano wrote a, a column for Monday's paper saying uh, he should not have resigned. Steve, you've been saying to me that your emails are coming in 50 to 1, uh, urging Tory to reconsider not to resign. And not only that, equal numbers of men and women. Because I can imagine people saying, yeah, Pakin, it's just your old white friends who are saying he should stay on. No, a lot of women, too. The politics of this are complicated, and, and they don't break down the way that uh, you, you normally you might expect them to. Mm -hmm. So we mentioned that there is some uh, discussion that uh, he could stay on just to help finalize the budget process. That would only be until Wednesday or maybe Thursday if the city hall meetings go longer, the city council meeting, I should say. He could, in theory, opt not to resign at all. Uh, there is no mechanism to uh, force him from office uh, absent uh, accusation of a serious crime, and there's been nothing... Uh, proposed in any of the news coverage that there, there's been any kind of law breaking. If he decides he wants to stay, that is entirely within his own decision to make. Uh, what is being discussed around him, I suspect, is how to do that from a communications perspective and a, and a political perspective, not necessarily from a, a, just a, a, a sheer factual, can he stay in the job question. There's also the possibility he could resign and then, I mean, I remember Sheila Copps doing this back uh, 30 years ago, where she said, uh, I'm, I'm going to oppose the GST, and if we put it through, I'm going to resign. Well, the liberals put it through. She resigned, and then she ran for her old seat again in the ensuing by-election. It's not crazy to think that Tory could resign and say to himself, I'm going to let the people decide and run in the ensuing by-election to replace himself. And if he wins, then he's got that good housekeeping seal of approval. That would be a pretty wild election to cover. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Anyway, we uh, let's admit here, we are speculating, but we are speculating based on uh, really wild tea leaves that we are reading right now. And there, there's just a lot of talking and a lot of uh, conversations around the mayor right now about what his next move ought to be. So obviously lots more to come on this. Just uh, to let people listening know, if you've got any comments you want to share with us or questions about this or anything else on the pod for that matter, you can always drop us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org, onpolitics at tvo.org. Okay, on to issue two. Just before we get to our interview on issue number two, let's set it up with this tweet from a user named T.O. Resident. T.O. is in Toronto, and they write, Question, what mechanisms are there for the federal government to ensure that health transfers are actually spent on health care? Good question. JMM, what's the answer? Uh, so Section 15 of the Canada Health Act allows the federal government to claw back a part uh, or any of the Canada health transfer. This is the, the chunk of change, usually in the billions of dollars, that the federal government sends to provinces uh, every year to help them pay for uh, health care. But 
the Canada Health Transfer and the Canada Health Act only spell out very uh, specific enumerated breaches of the law. And what Tia Resident is asking about might not actually qualify. Um, the Canada Health Act allows the governor in council, which is to say the prime minister advising the governor general, to withhold funds if the provincial policies are not, quote, comprehensive, universal, portable, and accessible. These are the four pillars of national Medicare. But under the law, there isn't really a clear authority that I could see to claw back the funds if a province uses the Canada Health Transfer for tax cuts, say. And indeed, we've seen provinces do that, and the federal government has had relatively few options. Let's follow up on that Q&A with another Q&A, this time with Liberal MPP Adil Shamji. He is the rookie member for Don Valley East and is a medical doctor as well. So we've invited him into our little voice booth here at Young and Eglinton in Midtown, not far from his riding, to talk health care funding. Dr. Shamji, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Dr. Shamji, uh, generally speaking, what are you looking for both as a provincial politician but also as a doctor uh, in the current federal provincial health care negotiations? We face a very challenging setting in our health care system right now. Uh, we have uh, a massive shortage of health care workers, backlog of medical services, and it requires an investment, a significant investment. And that's what I was, that's what I am and, and have been looking for in the proposals around our federal health transfers. Uh, the question, though, is what are the conditions around those? And in addition to looking for a substantial increase in the funding, I have been looking to ensure that there are going to be strings attached, conditions, to ensure that the funds that are forthcoming preserve the spirit and intent of the Canada Health Act to ensure that there isn't runaway profiteering in our healthcare system, and to ensure that decisions are made and evaluated in a data-driven, transparent, and accountable manner. Can I follow up on that? Why, why do you think it's appropriate for the federal government to put strings attached to the money they give the provinces? The federal government has an obligation to ensure that the Canada Health Act is being honoured and preserved. And certainly, in the province of Ontario, there are enough examples to make us worry that the spirit has not been preserved. Enough opportunities for us to wonder that there may well be already runaway profiteering in our healthcare system. And so I don't blame and in fact encourage the federal health government to the extent that I'm able to as a provincial member to hold the government accountable, uh, the provincial government accountable rather. If the feds do in fact transfer uh, you know, billions of new dollars to the provincial treasury, uh, what kind of reforms are you looking for those dollars to buy? The announcement that came out just last week signaled you know, some of the priorities, which I totally agree with. You know, there needs to be substantial investments in primary care, in mental health, substance use and addictions, in uh, clearing our backlog of medical services and ensuring that we have a robust health human resource plan here in Ontario. And so I'm looking for all of those things and relieved to be seeing those, those things articulated. The other thing that the federal health transfer uh, announcement did mention, uh, and I don't think it's insignificant that it was mentioned, was the fact that they will be looking to ensure that the principles of the Canada Health Act are preserved. Now, how that will happen, I don't know, but I hope that it will be done in earnest. You used a word just a second ago that we don't hear a lot when we talk about health care in Ontario, and that is profiteering. Give me an example. What kind of profiteering are you seeing out there? Perhaps one of the most conspicuous and recent examples to come forward has been in the realm of virtual primary care services. Now, prior to the pandemic, they were not funded at all. And so it was a privately funded service. During the pandemic, it became publicly funded. And people, especially ones who couldn't access primary care, were able to go to virtual primary care providers. 
and it was great and it was equitable. In the wake of the new physician services agreement that, w- that came out on December 1st, virtual primary care is now an insured service. And yet we see many examples of virtual primary care providers that are essentially uh, engaging in pay-for-access where individuals who can only pay, you know, roughly 60 or $70 are able to access what is a publicly insured service. And that really, it's truly a shame. There, there is immense potential for primary care to address some of the issues in access for some of our most marginalized and vulnerable members of the population, for people in rural and remote areas. Those are also the individuals who are least likely to be able to pay 60 or $70 for a visit. And so that, I think, is a very conspicuous, very recent example of profiteering that needs to be addressed rather expeditiously. So fair to say that you uh, would have objections to the current provincial governments allowing more private players to offer publicly funded services and, and procedures in, uh, or rather outside of the hospital setting. I'm deeply concerned about that. Now, to be clear, there is a precedent uh, in many jurisdictions around the world for health services moving outside of hospitals, and it has been done successfully. I support the move towards independent health facilities, but there have to be safeguards. And in the announcement by, you know, Minister Jones and Premier Ford, there there is nothing that reassured me that they can be trusted, as they have proved they can't be trusted around issues like the green belt. We need to see that there can't be runaway profiteering. The uh, the Auditor General in 2021 identified significant concerns with upcharging and upselling in out of uh, in out of hospital cataract surgery clinics. Many of us have called out the provincial government to take action on the Auditor General's recommendations. None of those things have happened. While I admit and am happy to admit that there is merit for moving procedures out of hospitals, it has to be done in a way that is not for profit, that protects patients from upselling and upcharging, that ensures that these out-of-hospital out of clinics are affiliated with hospitals to ensure there's adequate infection prevention and control, quality standards, and the like. Okay, before I ask this next question, I got to do one of these full disclosure things because I always have to remind people that my wife works in this space. She's a health policy consultant. She works on these issues, so I put that out there in the interest of full disclosure. Let me ask you a couple of follow-up questions on that. Upselling. Don't hospitals upsell? I mean, every time I go to the hospital and if I'm a patient, they ask me, you know, do you want a semi-private room? Do you want a private room? you want a telephone? you want a television set? Isn't that upselling? Well, those are non-insured services. And whether you choose to get, you know, a, a television in your room, a phone in your room, or a semi-private room shouldn't influence how quickly you're moved out of the emergency department and into a patient bed. Unfortunately, you know, some of the issues that were identified by the Auditor General around cataract surgery clinics were that individuals, unless they were willing to go for the higher-priced, not publicly covered uh, cataract lens, for example, intraocular lens, for example, if they weren't willing to pay out of pocket, then they, w- they went into a separate waiting list that was significantly longer. And so that is a concern. It, that is one of the concerns. The other concern is it's much easier to be well-informed about whether you'd like a phone in your room or a semi-private room. Far more difficult to be able to make a decision about whether you'd like to have a steel or titanium um, prosthetic, you know, uh, hip or knee uh, when you contemplate, uh, you know, a, a hip or, or, or knee replacement. There is an asymmetry in the knowledge that physicians have compared with patients. And that asymmetry has the potential to be exploited. And that's one of the reasons we have to have strong and credible protections in place to ensure that when patients see their physician, when they access care within the healthcare system, it is fair, equitable, and transparent. Everything has the potential to be exploited, but do you know whether it actually has been exploited? Do you have evidence to suggest that it's happening? 
Well, as I mentioned, in 2021, the Auditor General identified significant concerns around profiteering around cataract surgery clinics, for example, recommended sweeping recommendations for how these things can be uh, how these things can be remedied. And unfortunately, there has been zero action taken. That's not me. That is the Auditor General, an independent, nonpartisan officer of the legislature, identifying these concerns. Okay, let me try one more, and that is you're a liberal MPP. Yes, sir. There's a federal liberal MP who represents Papineau named Justin Trudeau. And he hasn't said boo about any of this stuff. In fact, when he's been directly asked, do you have any concerns about what the province of Ontario is trying to do in terms of getting more private players into publicly insured services, he has uh, very deliberately not taken the bait on that to oppose what Doug Ford is doing. How come? I certainly uh, wouldn't presume to put myself in the prime minister's uh, in the prime minister's shoes. But what I will tell you is that in my conversations with patients, with other MPPs, even with other members of parliament, we all share these concerns in regards to what sort of parliamentary, legislative, or communication strategy uh, the prime minister is going to use in order to preserve the Canada Health Act, uh, which I have no doubt he intends to do. I, I can't really comment or explain what is running through his mind right now. Dr. Adil Shamji, MPP for Don Valley East, thank you so much for joining us. The pleasure is mine. And on to issue three. We can actually lead this one off with a listener question from Anya Gorka, who asks, is there any political reasoning behind the order of the striking exterior freezes in red massive stone above Queen's Park South entrance portico? The first one is music. The second, agriculture. Is this a minister of music? If it's not a reference to how Queen's Park works, never mind. <laughs> so, Steve, I'm just going to say that this question delighted me. Because, I'm not surprised. <laughs> well, I have been covering the legislature for almost a full decade now, and I have never once noticed those words in and on the front of Queen's Park. I, I just, I, I must have walked past them a thousand times and, and I just never noticed them, which is admittedly not a ringing endorsement of my own keen reporter's eye, but we're going to move on. Uh, it turns out that the legislature has themes that were carved into it when it was first built. Uh, ten of them, in fact. They are music, agriculture, commerce, law, philosophy, architecture, engineering, art, science, and literature. There is no connection between those themes and uh, the business of government. There is no ministry of music, no ministry of art. Uh, but the themes are there, I guess, to inspire MPPs to think big about their work. As long as we're talking about these structural features of Queen's Park, last week the Canadian press reported that the legislature is getting closer to a major deadline. At some point in coming years, MPPs are going to have to find somewhere else to work. Like the federal parliament in Ottawa, Queen's Park needs some pretty substantial repairs. And over the life of this current legislature, the government is going to finalize plans for the renovations. Okay, partner, what's on the drawing board? You know, we have spoken before about how, uh, despite how much you and I both love the legislature as a building, it definitely needs some work. There is asbestos in the walls, lead in the pipes, uh, the heating system is quite ancient. Uh, offices in the legislature rely on all sorts of jury-rigged HVAC solutions, and it is not at all unusual to see staff or reporters with their office windows wide open in January because the radiators are overpoweringly hot. Right. So Minister of Legislative Affairs Paul Calandra estimates that it's going to cost something like a billion dollars to do a pretty substantial renovation of the legislative building to address issues like all of what we've just mentioned. You did say billion, right? A One billion, billion with dollars? A B. Billion with a B. Well, in Ottawa, Parliament's center block is, of course, closed for at least a decade as they make repairs there. 
Do we have any idea how long MPPs could be out of the legislature? I don't think the government has produced any kind of hard and fast number, but uh, based on CP's reporting, it certainly feels like you know five to ten years is a plausible guess. Uh, which brings me to an idea I would like to propose here on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, should I say, uh-oh, <laughs> what do you got up your sleeve? Uh, let's have like a roving parliament for a few years. Let's have MPPs meet in other cities and not just Toronto, since they're, they're moving out of the legislature anyway for a while. Maybe not all the time, but, you know, periodic meetings where folks outside of Toronto could see the legislature at work and meet more than just their own local MPPs. I think it could be good for the province. You know what? I'm going to shock you here. Okay. I love that idea. (laughs) I really do. I think that's a great idea. There's nothing that says that everything has to take place in Toronto all the time. And I well remember how far back are we going now? Well, it's 37, 38 years ago. I think David Peterson was was the first premier of Ontario who actually used to take cabinet meetings on the road and he would have his cabinet meet in various parts of the of the province of Ontario understanding that maybe people might feel a little more connected to their government if everything weren't always happening only in Toronto all the time. So uh yeah, sign me up McGrath, why not? You know, I think if nothing else, I would love to see MPPs crowd into maybe like a rented hockey arena in Timmins. And I would just love to see like the, I would love to see the crowd come out to see like what you and I get to see when we go watch Question Period, for example. I would I would love to see uh, people see more parts of this province and for more parts of this province to see the legislature at work. You know what? You should, right after we're done here, you should send an email to Paul Calandra's executive assistant and say, hey, listen to the On Poly podcast uh, right near the end. We got an idea for you. Let's see if that goes anywhere. Okay, that is the On Poly podcast for this Tuesday, February 14th, 2023. Please remember to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe at tvo.org slash newsletters. This week, JMM and I continue our conversation on the shocking events at Toronto City Hall. Any feedback you have, we are happy to hear it, good, bad, or indifferent. Write us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Matthew O'Mara. Our managing editor is Shayer Tejvidi. Production support from Nikki Ashworth, Carla Lucetta, and Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not over yet, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe and stay busy, Steve. (laughs) 